Hello, and welcome to Altered States of Context, a podcast about psychedelics, science, and psychotherapy. Today, Brian and I sit down and have a chat about the history of psychedelics. This is, of course, an impossibly broad topic. Uh, the history of psychedelics spans from ancient prehistory through nearly all ancient cultures across the globe, through the you know, early scientific explorations in the West and the current psychedelic renaissance today. Our purpose in this conversation is not to be exhaustive, but it's to point down you know, many avenues a curious listener could go down to learn more and to demonstrate a variety of contexts that psychedelics have been used in over time. I think it's important not to get hung up on the idea that psychedelics are merely a medicine being used to treat mental illness, and we kind of want to talk about the many, many ways that they've been used throughout history. So that's the goal of our conversation today. If you enjoy this conversation, and if you haven't enjoyed other shows that we've done, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and sharing this and or other episodes that you've listened to. So if you find value in this, if you enjoyed it, please consider sharing it and help us find a wider audience so we can continue to produce this show and have conversations such as this. So enjoy this show on the history of psychedelics. Thanks for listening. All right, welcome to Altered States of Context. What are we going to be talking about today, Nate? Today, we're going to talk about one of my very favorite things to talk about with psychedelics, which is the history of it, you know, which in many ways is a history of human consciousness. So I think we're, we're going to have a lot of fun with this one. And kind of the main goal, and I think the reason to have this conversation you know, so early in, in the podcast is to demonstrate and make space for a astounding amount of diversity within how psychedelics have been utilized and practiced throughout human history. And to kind of, in my view, keep, you know, the academic psychological version of it sort of in its place, which is useful, you know, the scientific study and the, you know, you know within tr using it for treatment of psychological disorders is useful and good. And, you know, that's great work. But it is a, you know, a fraction of what psychedelics have meant to humans throughout history. And it isn't by any means the whole shebang. And I think that's really important to keep in mind and to kind of keep, you know, keep us as practitioners or would-be practitioners sort of a little bit humble about what our role is in the, in the greater psychedelic scheme of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You've shared with me, Nate, that this is a, a favorite topic of yours. I'm, I'm curious, what what about this topic do you do you love? Like, what excites you about this? I think for me, it sort of it puts it puts all of us humans throughout time and space in this in the same boat. I think it really for me it makes me feel a real part of the entire history of the human species. You know, I love reading about ancient uses of it um, and just really connecting with what that experience must have been like and to kind of viscerally feel the lack of the difference uh, between my human experience and the human experience of somebody going through uh, a temple in Chavan in 
Peru, you know, uh, 2,500 years ago. And that that's just a, a, a very, it's a very exciting thought for me, you know, and, and just to imagine the essential aspect of those experiences being sort of somewhat continuous over time. Yeah, what I love about this topic is that it really, it's a fascinating topic. It's a fascinating history when you start to look at how other cultures have lived their lives, how they've used psychedelics. And I think really puts our current culture, not just in terms of medicine, you know, Western medicine, Western therapy, but puts our culture into context when we compare it to all these different other ways of, of forming culture that existed uh, for, for thousands of years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If, I think, that, you know, as you're talking to, it makes me think, it makes me feel personally, uh, like on a personal level, a little bit less like an oddball. Because <laughs> sometimes <laughs> I have these real countercultural notions and, you know, I just don't, I feel like this real chafing fit sometimes with the society we live in. And it's helpful, really helpful to broaden that perspective and to kind of feel at home sort of in a broader stream of human experience rather than this very one specific culture bound one that's right now in this time and place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It opens up to other possibilities and other ways of being other, other sets of values or what people mm -hmm. viewed as being important. Yes. So let's, Boy, it's hard. It's, it's such an overwhelming topic um, because we're literally talking about thousands and thousands of years of human history. And I, I don't think we should even pretend to say that we're going to in any way exhaustively cover like what is the history of psychedelics in the West. So or not in the West, in the world. I was just listening to a podcast today uh, interviewing. Uh, it was the Andrew Sullivan interview of Brian Mura Rescue, I think is his name, who just wrote the book, The Immortality Key. And what that is, is essentially a history of um, psychedelics and, and psychedelic use in Western civilization. So really focusing on, on the Greeks and uh, early Christianity um, and various sects of early Christianity. And so I think that's why that history of psychedelics in the West popped in my head. But that's by no means all I want, all I think we should talk about today. So let me ask you a question. When you have learned throughout your life about psychedelic psychedelic medicine over time what, what's sort of like an episode or a little historical nugget that you f find particularly drawn to a, a favorite of yours mm -hmm. yeah i for me one of the, the key interesting ideas when we look at other cultures is this idea of what is prioritized in, in terms of a state of consciousness and one of the assumptions that we live in in our culture that we mostly don't realize or recognize we just take it for granted is that like our daily consciousness is the is reality our day-to-day -day waking conscious that's normal that's real and anything that deviates from that is not real you know it's a like dreams for example you know we have phrases in our culture like that was just a dream meaning like it doesn't it's there's no value to it it's it's just some sort of deviation from from this normal main 
way of being in the world. And when you look at other cultures, that was that 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 idea is kind of rare. <laughs> Most cultures, you know, for thousands of years, uh, have really prioritized altered states of consciousness, whether it be dreams, whether it be you know spiritual states, psychedelic states, as valuable sources of information. And and so I think our bias against altered states of consciousness is so embedded in our day to day lives that when we start to examine alternatives to that, we can really see that bias and how it impacts us. Yes. And, you know, I think this is something that has, uh, you know, this bias against um, altered states of consciousness, you know, has pretty deep roots in, you know, Western history here. But for, like, I just want to focus for a second just on, you know, the effect of like the last 40 years, uh, specifically the drug war. So the initial explosion, I guess you could say, of psychedelics into sort of public consciousness was like in the 1960s, of course, you know, and there's a real interesting lead up to that. And then the story of the 60s is super fascinating as well. Um, but I want to focus for a second just on prohibition, which, you know, was a reaction against the counterculture, more or less. There was, uh, you know, the hippies were spouting all kinds of crazy ideas that made it hard to run a capitalist society in the way that has been run for decades and started to scare people. And this enormous crackdown, you know, happened in LSD and psilocybin were made against the law and marijuana was, you know, penalties were stiffened, but it was an incredibly effective censorship campaign as well. So, so in addition to being just making it against the law for you or I or anybody to get it. It also stopped a ton of, of academic research that was well underway. Um, and it did it extraordinarily effectively, you know, like, because A, it made it against the law to um, utilize the substances, but it really made it extremely taboo, you know, to even talk about altered states of consciousness within the academy, I think. Um, and you can see that we've, you know, you and I are most familiar about that, you know, in the field of psychology, um, but that extends into other fields. That was um, one of the things that's apparent is in, you know, cultural anthropology that during that time, the late sixties and seventies, you know, there was interest in looking at ancient Greece and, and the Eulicinian mysteries and uh, the potion Kukion and, and the roots of that. And, and that became really unfashionable to study. And what's interesting now is that, with a lot of newer uh, scientific techniques, this can be studied in a way that it couldn't have been studied then. So, you know, like people are being able to dig up old containers, vases and things like that and, and begin to see, well, what actually were in those? And so there's like a psychedelic renaissance, so to speak, in other academic fields as well, not simply in the realm of, of psychology and psychiatry. So it's sort of interesting to see how that censorship throughout the, the academy, um, you know, really stifled discussion and learning and scholarship about this, not just direct clinical trials, but just sort of any advancement of knowledge. And it's also equally of note, I think that the flame was sort of kept burning by non-professionals and non-career academics, you know, like within the field of psychology, there've been underground therapists this whole time, you know, who've been doing this. There've been, you know, amateur um, this Brian Muir Rescue who wrote this book, and it's really 
heavily researched book and he's just been doing this in his spare time for the last 10 years, you know? Um, and now, I mean, I think there's more, you know, within, within that field academically, there's more interest now and, and there's more room now than there was. So it's, it's kind of interesting to see how, not just in psychology or psychiatry, but across fields of human knowledge in general, we're starting to really look closer at our relationship with psychedelic drugs over time. And we're finding that they're they're more prevalent than we ever thought they were. You know, many people don't realize that plants, potions, combinations of plants and uh, herbs and all kinds of things like that they they've been around for for thousands and thousands of years. There's some archaeological evidence that goes back. Uh, 9,000, 10,000 years where they're finding some evidence that there was likely the, the, the ceremonial use of psychedelics that were part of some, some cultures. So when we think about our modern culture, there's no, there's no comparable analog to that, right? There's nothing that we're doing in our culture that, that we could say, oh, that's the modern version of that. It's like, it's just completely absent, this idea of going to a different state of consciousness that has some potential benefit, whether that's spirituality or religion or personal growth, that, that there's, there's that, that kind of recipe is found over and over again um, in many cultures all, all around the world. Well, you know, I might make the argument that we can find that, you know, you can maybe not right now during uh, COVID, <laughs> at least we shouldn't, we shouldn't be finding it. Right. We should be finding it. Those, those people should stop it right now. <laughs> but, but I think that sprang up spontaneously. I think that that was what happened at the acid tests in San Francisco, you know, and we you know with the Grateful Dead shows and with raves. I mean, I think that that's sort of, you know, because I give, um, you know, obviously those contexts have their problems, but I, I, I don't, I think it's an mis absolute mistake to just dismiss those out of hand. It's just like, oh, those are just sort of these drug-fueled hedonistic things. I think there's a, a lot of ritual there. And I think that there's a craving that humans have for that sort of experience. And this is how our culture, in its sort of distorted prohibitionist way, has um, begun to integrate those. And I think we really should take those phenomenon seriously and, and see those as an expression of a human need. Yeah, completely agree. I guess I should clarify and say really more what I mean is in the mainstream culture. I think what you're mm. describing is evidence that there's a there's this kind of yearning for this seeking of an altered state or mm -hmm. or this type of experience that we don't get. So I'm saying that in, in the mainstream culture, in our modern times, there isn't that. And that's what in some ways psychedelic assisted therapy has this has this task in, for, for itself is to, you know, if, if this is going to be a legal medicine that's that people can use to reduce suffering, this is going to be a culturally sanctioned version of that. And how, how does that fit with our capitalist values, as you mentioned, or how does that fit with a lot of aspects of our culture, the, the bias towards rational thought, right? Like that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. It really is. And it's a super interesting, I think, point that will unfold over time within and amongst uh, people who are oriented towards psychedelics, you know, as, as this unfolds, because it's sort of a really conservative subset. You know, it's, it's just this one-on-one -on -one 
in a quiet room. You know, it's like maximizing like and sterilizing as much as possible about the experience. And I'm not saying that that's bad. I'm just saying that that is okay. So this is sort of like how we begin to integrate it is we sort of use all the trappings of, you know, Western science and medicine and, and, and sort of enact this in a very conservative manner, which I'm not, again, I'm not saying that that's inappropriate. I think it's the right thing to do given that, you know, you're trying to integrate this into the field of medicine but it kind of selects for a very sort of uh, conservative approach, you know, which is not uniformly popular amongst people who really are part of the psychedelic community, I guess you could say. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I think when I think about, you know, the history and, the way that psychedelics have been used in various cultures, you know, whether it's peyote or mescaline and, you know, Native American culture, mushrooms in Central America, ayahuasca, South America, uh, and so on. Uh, it's, it's really fascinating to me that there were these well-developed systems about, you know, and, and maybe we're idealizing it a bit because I'm sure there were problems with it, but they were at least trying to work out some of the same things that we're trying to work out. Like who, who are these substances best for who should decide who gets to have these substances? How, how old should you be when you first start using them? How do you make the most of the experience after it's happened? Right. And so we can look to these older cultures or older traditions for a lot of, a lot of wisdom. And that's what a lot of modern uh, folks are doing in, in psychedelic communities today. You know, I'm thinking of like Francois Bourgeois and her book, Consciousness Medicine, which is a great book that tries to really summarize some of the wisdom from more traditional indigenous perspectives and how we might use them in our more modern culture. Yeah, that's a, cause it's been used because it's been used in so many different contexts, right? There's been, shamanic contexts and contexts of healing a lot i think from what i can tell it seems most commonly to be in a, a ritualized context a ceremonial context a communal context you know you don't see a lot throughout history um i guess maybe in, in, a, in a shamanic uh, ritual there might be just the, the the person and the and the shaman but in a lot of uh historical use you see communal use uh, in a ritualistic ceremonial manner often in a celebratory way or in a way to mark death sometimes around, uh, you know, funeral type usage. So there's just all these different contexts that have been used historically. And so, and, and that's the part I think to really keep in mind is we're looking at our context of highly medicalized, you know, treatment for a DSM diagnosable uh, mental disorder, right? Like that's a very specific context. And I think that it's, a big assumption to assume that what's going to be the most useful application is just, is going to be look a whole lot similar to what, you know, we've known therapy to look like over 30 or 40 years, you know, with one, with one therapist and one, like, I, I don't think we should have a strong attachment to that because right. um, there are so many other contexts that's been used that we can learn from. Yeah. And I think we should point out that, that when we talk about their usage, there's still a lot of individual differences in the way cultures have used psychedelics. You know, for example, like in a lot of shamanic cultures, 
if you had a disease or, or, or illness and you went to the shaman, which is kind of like the spiritual leader or uh, someone who occupied maybe a position in our culture that might be like a doctor or a therapist, when you go to the shaman with with some sort of problem, the shaman takes the psychedelic, not you. <laughs> and the, you know, the, a lot of the traditions, the shaman goes into the spirit world and looks for the root of the problem and, and, and acts change there. Um, sometimes so you know, I, sorry i want to share i'm having a hilarious thought as you're saying this of like you know being a therapist you or i sitting in our office having our patient come in <laughs> and eating a bunch of mushrooms and then like okay man let's let's figure this out like, <laughs> that's kind of like what it was like yeah, yeah that's a funny thought to think like just to kind of transpose it on uh, on our current practices anyway yeah. sorry to interrupt I just <laughs> no, that really made me laugh it's a great it's a great uh kind of a illustration of that. And, and it seems kind of funny to us because it's just so different from our, our day-to-day uh, assumptions about how therapy works or how getting help for problems work. And so, yeah, like, you know, psychedelics were used for things like, you know, property disputes. You know, if there was a, you're arguing with your neighbor about, you know, where your land ended and their land began, you'd go to the shaman, maybe psychedelic was used. So there's a lot of, breath to the types of practices that that went around these medicines yeah i'll say a a word about like some of the ritual and ceremonial use that's uh, you know been really interesting to me and there's uh parallels between i recommend first of all the book mescaline by uh, mike j that's a fantastic book that that is a history of sort of mescaline and uh, which uh, comes from peyote and also the San Pedro cactus in South America. Those are two different species of cacti, but they both produce this, uh, this mescaline and can, which is a really potent psychedelic. And uh, it's a great book. So it's a history in basically the new world, North and South America of, of psychedelic use. Um, specifically mescaline. There's also, I think, a history of psilocybin use in South America, specifically. book doesn't go into that. It's really specifically around mescaline. They talk about some ancient temples in in Peru in which the use was highly ritualistic. You know, like participants would essentially enter in, they would consume this. There was, you know, uh, iconography, uh, rock carvings all over the temple of of cacti and uh, you know people enacting various rites, and so then then there would sort of be a procession through this temple, presumably while after they had eat, eaten the cactus. So it would be this real ritualized sort of usage, and you see this a similar thing in ancient Greece with the the mysteries of of Ulysses, which I personally find absolutely fascinating. Right at the birth of of what we consider uh, Western civilization, so so much of our intellectual, academic, cultural heritage of the West, you know, goes back to Greece and with with, uh, Plato and Aristotle. And all of the figures, you know, all all of the Greek figures, the Athenian figures that we look back at, they they were participants in this. And it was, you know, it was kind of a Dionysian rite. Um, Anyone could participate in it who I think spoke Greek and hadn't killed anyone. Those were the only two hard requirements to, to, to be able to attend these mysteries. And they would consume this brew called Kaikion that is not clear exactly what it was, but there's evidence that it contained ergot, which 
is a um, LSD. It's a precursor to LSD and, and has psychedelic effects. And then they would descend and reenact um, more or less the, um, they would view and participate sort of in a reenactment of the story of Hades and Persephone. You know, Persephone being brought down into the cave, brought down into the underworld. And then, you know, this is her story and, and, and being trapped there and uh, being able to reemerge for half the year, but having to go back again down for half the year. Uh, and these mysteries were famous and profound and, remarked on by you know people like Cicero who talked about the mysteries as being a gift from the Greek culture to the world and I just find it completely fascinating that this very very likely psychedelic ritual lies so deeply at the heart of western civilization yeah you, you know it brings to mind a question that I often have when I think about this which is how did people think about these experiences back then what was their context for it? Like, how did they think about them? Did they think about them as more like what we would, we would think of as like religious or spiritual? Did they think about it as healing or growth? Did they think about it as celebration? Did they think about it as, you know, communicating with spirits? I think to me, that's a really fascinating aspect because there's, there's so much, you know, in a psychedelic experience that is hard to put into words. So I'm always curious how, how people who have a lot of experience in their culture using a psychedelic, what's the language that they've developed to describe what's, what's happening here? Yeah. And I think it, it, like that varies based on tradition a lot. Like, I think, you know, when you look at more shamanic traditions, I think there's um, a great deal about healing, you know, the, the, South American San Pedro rituals and the Eulicinian mysteries seem to be very much around um, sort of spiritual language, like a, a reenactment of like a spiritual journey, particularly one. And this is one I think that really reoccurs throughout context throughout history is, you know, reenactment of living and dying and, and, and a simulation of, of, a, of a death experience and, and the, uh, the afterworld. You see that in the Eucinian mysteries, you know, like descending literally into the after into the afterlife um, and then reemerging. So I think that's a that's a common theme that I think I guess we would put in religious or spiritual sort of frame. You know, and, and sort of like, and it, it really is sort of a contrast. And I think an odd fit when we contrast that with a, a very sort of clinical idea of it that is being held right now. Like it's a, it's an odd fit. It's not, it's not a real clean sort of like, it feels like a stretch a little bit. It's useful. And, and I mean, it, I, I think it obviously is very clinically useful, but it seems like a, a unique, historically unique perspective on it. It is it, psychedelics don't have a neat place in our culture, right? They don't they don't fit clearly in in sort of one domain or the other. We have this thing in our culture called mental health or mental illness, um, which has its own mm -hmm. set of assumptions and its own kind of uh, framework or or baggage, and 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 so you know psychedelics for some people are are very religious. That's that's their the way they 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 find meaning and 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 understand and explain the nature of reality and the purpose of their lives and so i think when psychedelics are 
emerging now as this mental health treatment, you know, the, like you said, they, they're sort of being more targeted towards like help with, with mental health problems. Uh, and yet, like one of the things that the, you know, even the research is bearing out is it seems to be one of the most beneficial aspects of a psychedelic is what, what's been termed a mystical experience which which is a, a spiritual or religious experience even though i understand it's very possible to have a mystical experience and interpret it in a way that's very atheistic so we don't i'm not trying to imply that you have to believe in some sort of spirituality or religion but it's just interesting to me how you know we try to to put this separation between spirituality or you know the quest for purpose and meaning and then mental health and psychedelics are kind of blowing that up in a way. Yes, that is, that is absolutely true. You know, and especially you think of a, like a very dry sort of like scientist, you know, like it's not talking about mystical experience, you know, isn't necessarily where you imagine that going, but yet it, it does because um, sort of the experience necessitates it. Um, and it does blur that line and makes you really sort of question a lot of assumptions, uh, I think. Fortunately, to kind of loop around here to something we talked about last time, and you know, this is my little plug, I think, for why I think functional contextualism is such a useful frame is that, you know, scientifically speaking, functional contextualism isn't really concerned with is this real or not? Right. Because then that's sort of like where psychedelics really can put some weird, you know, they, they, they can make you question a lot of things. And, you know, if you're looking at it though, from a functional contextual point of view, you don't have to actually answer those um, scientifically speaking, but you can still play a lot with those ideas as a human, because it's awful fun and interesting, you know, but it's just, it's not necessary to follow that rabbit hole from a scientific perspective to see if it's useful for helping people or not. Nate, do you have a, a favorite aspect of history or something that comes to mind that stands out to you as really interesting or fascinating? You know, well, I, I talked about the Yelsinian mysteries, which are, are super fascinating to me. And, you know, and then and we haven't really talked about, and I think it's great, you know, we don't need to, because um, that story is out there for, you know, uh, you know, a great sort of source to go to for sort of like the story of psychedelics in the 20th century would be, you know, Michael Pollan's how to change your mind. It really gives that what I would call at this point, like almost like the straight history of psychedelics, which is sort of an ironic way to say it because it's anything but straight, but it is more like, just like a, you know, this, this is it. And it's the, it's, it's sort of almost the, the most well-known stories from that period. Um, as a lot of people have pointed out, a shortcoming of it, and I love the book, and I think it pointed out a lot of things, but this, the the uh, the shortcoming of it is it's an extremely, you know, white male history of the 20th century. So it, it's really heavily told from that frame. And, you know, from like the discovery of it uh, from by Gordon Wasson, who, of course, discovered it from a uh, indigenous woman, you know. Maria Sabina. Marina Sabina, yes, um, who, but, you know, she's not the emphasis, of course, it's Gordon Wasson bringing it to the rest, right, writing his famous Time article. You know, there, there are 
you know plenty of examples of it's the story is you know it's the white male story of of how psychedelics came to be where they are in our culture now that all being said i have a special affinity for aldous huxley i love his writings and so if you ask my favorite he's my dog is named huxley i i i, I love aldous huxley an interesting um, aspect of that that I guess I would focus on that I learned recently I didn't know about this and and I've read most of Huxley's writings and he's been an inspiration for me for 20 years but I hadn't read his his book Island and I did recently and um, it's sort of like a flip of Brave New World. Brave New World of course was his book sort of a dystopian book in which this dr- drug Soma was basically helped uh, create a mind control and helps people to accept unacceptable things and a pretty sterilized culture. Um, so it's a dystopian book, but his um, book Island was a utopian book. It's about a small island in the South Pacific that used moksha medicine, uh, he called it, um, and was very oriented towards uh, mindfulness and uh, compassion. And it is a neat story in that it, it, it you know, it was sort of like courageously utopian in my mind. Because in literary history, I think it's pretty unfashionable to be utopian. Telling dystopias are much more popular and seen as reasonable, but utopian uh, seems like a pretty unfashionable intellectual way to explore the world. But, and that book I learned was heavily influenced by his wife, Laura Huxley, heavily influenced, uh, who I didn't re- really know much about her, but she was a therapist in her own right. And, you know, he credits her with a great deal of, of influence over his um, conception of, you know, the island. I forget the name of the island in the, in the novel. She's the one, of course, who administered on his deathbed. You know, she, she was tended to him, administered LSD as he was dying per his request, you know, and kind of shepherded him through that experience and was quite an explorer and psychedelic therapist in her own right. And I didn't know any of that until about a week ago um, and was fascinated to learn that, and especially over her influence over his book, which is quite a departure, I think, from a lot of his other work. I mean, his, he'd written uh, uh, The Doors of Perception, and he'd written a lot about his experiences with psychedelics, but not integrating it into a novel like that. And um, it's a really neat book. I recommend it. And I was really glad to learn about Laura Huxley as well. Yeah, I, I read that book myself years ago, and and remember, remember being this, you know, like what if you could design a culture that got it right? Uh, what if you could design a culture that had, you know, a set of values and principles and practices that really allowed people to thrive, and there, you know, there there wasn't um, there wasn't as much conflict and all the things that plague our culture. It's and you know, I think there's something about the psychedelic experience that 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 kind of evokes that, right? You could say that in a, a mass, you know, a, a, a group level, when people started doing a lot of LSD in the 50s and 60s, there was this this vision, right? This vision of a better life, a better culture than what was what was happening at the time which you could mm-hmm. criticize and say, you know, was maybe contributed to its demise. People will argue and say, oh, that was just, you know, that was that was too pie in the sky. That was too idealistic. Uh, but I think that's that's part of the potential of psychedelics is to show us things that we that we just couldn't couldn't think about just sitting around on the average day having a cup of coffee. 
like these these ideas or these better these ways of being that we're, we're just so embedded in our day-to-day assumptions and our our uh, as you know we talked in the earlier podcast our, our mental maps that it's just we're, we're so limited we don't even realize it and so psychedelics can really just bring up some ideas or visions of ways of of being in a culture or different ways of existing that uh, that just don't seem possible without some kind of really powerful agent to occasion them. You know, I think it's no accident, of course, that the anti-war movement, the anti-Vietnam War movement sort of arose, which, I mean, it's a, it was a pretty unprecedented thing, right? Where uh, young people just sort of rise up and say, hey, we don't want to fight this war. I mean, look, like... That, and, and, and I think in retrospect, we can look at that as a triumph. I mean, it was a clearly unjust, unnecessary war um, that increased suffering in the world and in, amongst our own people in this incredible way um, that was absolutely wasteful and pretty indefensible. You know, historically, when you look back at the Vietnam War, it's completely unnecessary and very difficult to defend. You know, and, and this movement, this sort of unprecedented movement rose up powerfully in resistance to it. And I don't think that it's a, it's accidental that at that same time, you know, you see the rise of the counterculture and the proliferation of, um, of psychedelic drugs. Uh, I don't think that that accidentally happened. I don't think that those things are unrelated to one another. Um, and it's pretty unprecedented, you know, the degree to which people rose up against a, a war. It's hard to find precedent for that. Yeah, I mean, we see it again in the, you know, the early rave community um, with MDMA. Um, I guess that was in the 90s somewhere where mm-hmm. I forget the acronym. Was it PLUR, like peace, love, unity and respect was part of the motto. And there was this vision, this sort of utopia like vision of, well, what if we could learn to love each other? And, what you know, these sort of things that sound so cliche to us Um uh, you know, to, to many of us at, at, you know, in a certain context, you know, we're, we're, we're real or real truths or real experiences that, that people were having. And, and so, yeah, for me, when I think about, you know, you brought up Huxley's book Island and this idea of cultural improvement, cultural healing, right? So we're, we're our, our podcast and, and we're talking, uh, you know, about we're, we're both therapists. We, we think about healing on an individual level. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not, you know, I don't, I'm not, I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about um, more cultural policy level things, but it, it's an interesting idea to think about psychedelics as a way to heal culture as well. Yes, absolutely. Um which is why I think, you know, it's important that we don't endorse just this very narrow frame of like, hey, this is a, uh, this is like a pharmaceutical agent for treating mental illness, right? Like, I don't, I mean, we can do the research and study that and be as fastidious as possible about that path, but to not endorse the idea that that is the main or most important or highest path in any way. Of course, I've if said you, that a few times. You can see that that's pretty important to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it bears repeating. And, and, you know, I can understand there is also on the other side of that a value in being very modest, <laughs> being very cautious when talking about this, because that idea is scary to people and it turns people mm-hmm. off. So I think it's a, you know, it, it's it's this balance for me between 
you know, trying to be very, when I talk about psychedelics, let's say in a professional context or to clients, you know, I, I try to, to be very reasonable sticking to the research, sticking to um, the things that I, that I know for sure. And, and um, but yet like, of course there's room for um, many other ways of thinking about psychedelics that we're trying to, you know, identify today that are just as valuable as a therapeutic application. Yeah, it sits at the nexus of a whole lot of, uh, of, of different areas of human experience. So how about you? What's a, a favorite of yours, a favorite uh, episode or story or, you know, historical uh, figure event? I've always been fascinated by this, this phenomena that has been called St. Anthony's fire or St. Andrew's fire. And what it is, is a poisoning that, that occurs when people eat rye that's been diseased or spoiled. So uh, this fungus ergot grows on rye and if people get sick, it's kind of like a serotonin syndrome occurs. Uh, they get uh, convulsive, they get really hot, their skin's burning, and they start to hallucinate and kind of like go crazy. And when this happened in these, you know, imagine, you know, a small town where there was like one baker for everybody. If there was ergot, if there was, if there, if that, if that was, if that fungus was present and uh, ev everyone would be experiencing this at the same time. So, you know, essentially it's kind of like, some ways like a whole town is tripping without knowing it and of course you can imagine how frightening this must have been if you were part of that experience uh, and this is ultimately what led albert hoffman to discover lsd he was basing his he was uh, in trying to invent new chemicals that were based on ergot and that's the story is that that's how we eventually came across lsd I think what, what's interesting about it to me is like when you don't know you're taking a psychedelic or when you don't know what that experience is like, you know, it's sim similarly fascinating to me when LSD first came to the U.S., it was distributed to psychology departments and psychiatry departments like at Harvard, uh, where Leary and Metzner and Alpert were, were, were there. These are big, big famous people in, you know, psychedelic uh, history. Uh, the straight psychedelic history as, as Nate um, coined it. Um, and they didn't know what, what this experience was. And, you know, I, like you or I could never take a psychedelic without knowing it, what a psychedelic does because we have some knowledge of it. Uh, but it's just interesting that kind of like to, to, to walk into that experience without any preconceived notions about what, what it's like um, to me is just fascinating. Yeah, so that which is like, of course, um, the the Saint Anthony's fire, but also just you know Hoffman's experience himself. You know that accidentally, accidentally taking it through his fingers and not even knowing what it was. I've thought about like thought about that experience a lot and how terrifying that must have been for him to accidentally not even know that this is a thing that exists on planet Earth. This is even an experience that there's any context for at all, and just all of a sudden you're in it, or a whole town is in it. What a, yeah, what a wild thing to think about. I was thinking of another, it's kind of fun to think about, and this is really way more out in the speculative sort of realm, but I've always loved, it's not verifiable in any way. It's just, again, more of a playful thought. I've always loved Terrence McKenna's stone ape theory, you know, which essentially was that our 
ancient, 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 ancient ancestors, ancient primate ancestors, you know, found psychedelic mushrooms and, you know, that made them sort of precipitated the evolution of modern hominids. It's kind of a fun idea, but also one that's increasingly like may actually be testable someday, you know, because of new, you know, techniques of being able to, you know, look at fossilized remains and actually, you know, there might be evidence that could be collected, but um, that's an idea I've always thought was just kind of fun to think about on a purely speculative sort of playful level. Yeah. And I, you know, I think we're, we, we sort of touched on this before, but there's this, there's this idea that humans have an innate desire to alter their consciousness and we can either admit that and try to do that in ways that are healthy and effective in our lives, or we could try to deny that and then um, act out or seek it out in ways that, that wind up being destructive, which what I would argue is a lot of uh, what, what's happening today in this by current times where there's this bias against, you know, any, any altered state, but people, people are seeking it out in, in various ways and some of them are more helpful than others. Yeah. Interestingly, um, you know, Dr. Andrew wheel while I think um, who is the big kind of uh, integrative medicine, natural health um, guru. Now, you know, with the big beard sort of ubiquitous book, uh, you know, on supermarket shelves and whatnot. He's written quite a bit about it, about natural health, but his first book, and his early career was he, he, I think his first study he ever did when he was, I think he was at Yale, but I'm not hundred percent sure about that. He did a study about um, marijuana and was sort of becoming involved in psychedelic research, right? When that all blew up. Um, and his first book was called The Natural Mind, where he makes essentially the argument that you just made, you know, and it's a book link treatment of that argument that the drive to alter one's consciousness is a, um, is a basically a human instinct. And he gives a lot of cool examples. And again, he writes, that's the purpose of the whole book. Um, the first one being just how small children will spin themselves in circles until they become dizzy. You know, he kind of cites that as a, as, as, a, as a first example of like humans have this desire to transcend or to alter our consciousness. And that is sort of fundamental to having consciousness in that way, in, in the way that humans have it. It's a cool book. Yeah. Another aspect of history that I would want people to know about is, is, is in more reference to the therapeutic use of psychedelics. And, and that is just simply the fact that in the 1950s and the 1960s, there was a ton of research going on. It was mostly LSD therapy, but other psychedelics as well, you know, mescaline, psilocybin. But LSD therapy was estimated uh, to be given to 40,000 patients to treat a variety of things, alcoholism, uh, neurosis, personality disorders, even schizophrenia. And during that time, there was over a thousand scientific papers. So we're not talking about like a couple of random people at some college who were, got this wacky idea to do drugs and that it could be helpful. Like this was a major movement in psychology and psychiatry. And what's really interesting to me is that this is just not taught in, in medical school. It wasn't taught in my mainstream clinical psychology training. I, and I would argue, like we, we had um, suggested before that, you know, with the war on drugs and uh, the closing down of all that began this, this 
this really calculated effort to to uh, develop a lot of stigma around this. And so I, I would want people to know that there's a good, you know, and, and a lot of the research that I'm citing, you know, is, is, wasn't the best research back then. Our trials weren't as well designed as they are now. But, you know, just to know that there, there was a, we're not starting from scratch. Like there's a lot of good initial data to suggest that these are, these are these are healing, and of course, this is being borne out by our more modern, more rigorous trials, which are which are demonstrating that there there is really good outcomes. In fact, uh, with uh, you know psychedelic assisted therapy, it might be you know somewhere around twice as effective as uh, regular therapy or regular medication. Yeah, it was a, just a super effective censorship campaign throughout you know, the academic world, um, super, super effective. When I was in um, undergrad, you know, in the late 90s, I was like a psychology undergrad with shoulder-length hair and tie-dyes. And, um, and uh, you know, I decided in one of my classes I was going to write a paper about this because it was super fascinating. And my psychology professor at the time, I remember she was kind about it and humored me. But like I could just tell she was a little bit like, yeah, okay, that's nice, Nate. Like it was really just like, very, like humored me, but it was really sort of also dismissive at the same time, which at the time struck me as like, but why? <laughs> like, why aren't, like, why isn't anybody teaching this? Like, look yeah. at this, like, look at this. This is like, it became illegal. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, we don't talk about that anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it like, oh, you know, their, their research methods were suspect. Well, sure. You know, it's not like you can look back and say that everything was pristine, but you can look at the sheer volume of what was done and be like, wow, this really bears a lot more looking into. And it obviously did. It obviously did. If you would read it. And, I, and that was my experience at that point in my life, looking at it like this obviously bears more attention. Mm-hmm. Like this need. And, and, and it was just, like shut down, nothing. We're not talking about that. We're not thinking about that. It's not anything we can do about. So it might as well not exist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we have this model of psychedelic assisted therapy today, um, which, you know, involves things like two therapists, eye shades, you know, a playlist going inside, and it, it, this is a really great model. And it, it again, the, there's a lot, there's more and more evidence coming out to, to support it. So, but one thing to keep in mind is that it's just one model. And mm-hmm. we're just at the beginning of really discovering how to best use these, how to best use these substances. In fact, there was a, um, a study that just came out recently about group therapy for um, psychedelic treatment, which is way more cost effective and has a lot of social benefits that, you know, individual therapy doesn't. So I uh, just like to, you know, point out that uh, there's, there's probably going to be other models of use, like one older model that, that isn't, that wasn't, didn't seem to be as effective, which was taking smaller doses of psychedelics, and then having like regular talk therapy, this was called like a psycholytic paradigm. And it was when, you know, psychoanalysis was more popular and they found that that, that wasn't as effective as uh, what the model that we're kind of using today, psychedelic therapy, which is taking a big dose, having a really powerful transformative experience, and then letting the experience kind of be the, the, the center 
uh, of a you know the center attraction rather than the the therapy being um, the back and forth kind of traditional therapy being a key part of the psychedelic experience. You know, it brings to mind um, for me from that era, the at Harvard, the Good Friday experiment, experiment, which was not a therapeutic done in a therapeutic context, but they found that, you know, they, they had the two groups, um, you know, and they administered niacin to one group and the other group, they administered psilocybin, you know, in the context of church and, 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 a, and an overtly religious sort of cert, like uh, context. And they found that it, significantly um, increase the likelihood of having, uh, you know, what they defined at the time we still talk about as a mystical experience, which we also are seeing seems to be pretty correlated with a lot of the therapeutic benefit. Right. And so this was done in a context that wasn't therapy, like wasn't therapy. It wasn't one-on-one at all, you know? And so it's, it's, I think the jury is still out on the usefulness of lots of different methodologies here. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's a fascinating, there's a lot of fascinating work done in that area. And then when they were doing that too, you have, you know, so many different stories spin off, you know, the, the, the Ken Kesey was the author who wrote sometimes a great notion and one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Most famously, he was involved in a study in California and he really liked it, you know, and, and became founded the Merry Pranksters, which is a notorious band of hippies, basically in the, in the late sixties who were closely associated with the acid tests and, and the Grateful Dead emerged from that culture. You know, so you have all these spinoffs from, from, from when the cat got out of the bag, so to speak. Yeah. The story of MDMA is always been fascinating to me and that, that, that came kind of after, right? Like LSD was kind of the psychedelic that introduced modern culture to psychedelics and then psilocybin like came in just a little bit after that of course psilocybin mushrooms were were still being used and are still being used by by cultures but this is when our culture you know the u.s and and western culture kind of uh, discovered them i'm putting that in quotes but mdma is an interesting story in that it came later and it initially a lot of people don't know this either mdma which is referred to as Molly or ecstasy, the, those are its street names. MDMA was used exclu- you know, most exclusively by therapists for many years uh, in, in therapy sessions and in couples therapy. And there's this, this sort of um, idea that goes with MDMA that you can do two years of therapy in one session, uh, which there's some, some truth to that, I think. But there was a real extensive history of this being used before it even became recreational, even before it became used in, in settings, which then like LST led to it being scheduled and shut down and then ended the research. So these were two examples of, of initially the psychedelic being used in a more scientific or more, uh, you know, thoughtful, intentional way that then it kind of slipped, slipped out and, and then, there was this backlash that that shut it all down. So of course, a lot of folks today, you know, psychedelic researchers are very cautious and fearful. Of course, the cat's out of the bag, and it's being used already in the culture. So it's it's not like that 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 isn't happening. But there's just this fear again of of another another backlash, another shutting down of things. But it seems to me, and I don't know what you think about this, that you know, today 
that it, it's it's more promising that this is this is really going to be an option for people. It seems like we've gone pretty far down that road. I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. I think MDMA is, you know, I read that one of the main phase three studies has been completed and found to be successful. So that puts it very, very close to demonstrating me uh, medical use, which would force it to be descheduled from schedule one if it had was found to be having medical use, it'd be empirically found that way, which gives it, I think, some legal protection, actually, you know, if it can make it through the phase three trial, which seems likely at this point. So I'm hopeful that it won't uh, replay. I think our culture is much more fertile ground for this now than it was in the 1960s, you know, much more fertile ground. And, you know, a lot of the people in a lot of places who are decision, decision makers were, you know, 20 years old in 1969. Um, and so there, I think there are, <laughs> quote, maybe potential allies in places that there weren't, you know, 40 or 50 years ago people who are more sympathetic uh, and more open to the idea. Um, so I think there's a lot of reasons to think it won't play out the same way. And, you know, I mean, I think at the same time, of course, scientists are going to be scientists and they should be, and they should be extremely rigorous and they should be extremely careful. And just because it's, it's a psychedelic doesn't mean you should compromise any on the methodology of science. So be as, you know, as, as cautious and conservative as possible when you're doing, when you're doing that route. I just, I, I think sometimes I, where I retain a little bit of hesitation is presuming that that route is like, that's the golden road and the other ways are somehow less than that. That's the part where I chafe a little bit. I'm like, no, that's a great route. And in our route we should be doing and doing it exactly by the book doing you know science it in a <laughs> science the heck out of it in a very dry scientific way and then but then also understand that there's like you know let a thousand flowers bloom so to speak mm -hmm. yeah it's it's in interesting in oregon where uh, 109 recently passed which is a measure that approves mm -hmm. psilocybin assisted therapy and there's a real vigorous debate about you know, who should, who should be allowed to have these experiences and who gets to say who has these experiences. Yeah. And so, if, you know, we, we're going to go by the science. And again, I completely agree. There's, there's uh, great value to that, but does that mean that people can't use it for recreation or consciousness exploration? Or does that mean, you know, only doctors, which tend to be white men, um, only only doctors or, you know, educated or more privileged folks get to get to practice this, whereas cultures who have been, you know, this is the cultures have been using psychedelics there, it's still illegal for them, that doesn't seem fair. Uh, and so mm -hmm. I don't really have a good answer to that to that tension. But I think you know what you're saying and what we've been trying to really emphasize this this episode is that uh you know therapy the therapeutic application of psychedelics is a good and valuable approach and it is not the only approach mm -hmm. yeah yes and it really dovetails nicely with a uh a focus on on decriminalization you know, I think it, it goes hand in hand, like, you know, it, and I, I think ethically, I feel bound for sure. And it's my sort of judgment, I guess, that 
well, that's how I feel, <laughs> um, is that if you do, if you are a proponent of psychedelic medicine, you should also be a proponent of decriminalization, right? Because, well, that's, that's my perspective. So Nate, was there anything in your, your uh, version of psychedelic history that, that we left out? Um, well, lots, but, (laughs) (laughs) but, you know, I mean, I, I kind of, like I said, I, I kind of liked that we were a little, you know, um, not necessarily linear about it because, uh, you know, I think that what we're really concerned about is seeing the various contexts that we're seeing all the different possibilities and the ways that humans have related to it over time. Not that we need to tell a coherent A to B to C to D story because there isn't one when it comes to psychedelics. Okay. There are just simply, you know, human encounters over time with this. And then the human need and desire to make sense of those encounters. And this is how we're doing it now. And humans have done it lots of different ways. And I think those are all valid and deserving to be honored and um, and I think humans with our own consciousness as individual people sort of deserve to have our own encounters and to make sense of them, you know, as we choose, you know, I'm a big believer in the idea of cognitive liberty from that point of view. So, you know, this isn't just a therapeutic tool, although it is that, you know, and that we need to honor the fullness of what these drugs and the human encounter with these drugs mean. To me, that's the value of, of understanding the history of it is that it's just wildly diverse and interesting. Yeah, I agree. And I, I would just sum up too by, by emphasizing that I think knowing some history is, is helpful. So if you're interested in psychedelic therapy, you don't know much about some of the folks that we've talked about today or some of the events famous studies it could be helpful just to have some sense of it you don't need to know it all or um, spend necessarily spend a whole lot of time but it, it, it definitely helps helps to understand what's happening today to be able to have a sense of how they've been used like pre-modern you know pre-modern times before 1943 when Albert Hoffman you know, accidentally ingested LSD and, and that kind of started the, the chain reaction of, of psychedelics being introduced in our culture. So knowing the, the, the sort of traditional indigenous um, shamanic perspectives and then knowing a bit about the history of how they were used in the, in the 50s and the 60s and then um, 70s uh, really helps understand where we're at today. Absolutely. Well, I think that that pretty well covers, I think. I mean, we could go on and on and on, but I think that gets the gets the gist of it. So, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.